Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Last night, before church started, little Jerusalem came up to me. And she said, my daddy's going to preach. <laughs> but I tell you what, when I, w- I looked into Jerusalem's face and looked into her eyes, I went back 30 years. We had just joined a church staff in Grand Junction, and Megan was three years old. And she come up to me and, you know, to greet me and to introduce herself to me, she said, Hi, I'm Megan Michelle Bosch, three years old. I had no idea in that moment the, um, the connection that Megan, along with her family, would have in Marilyn and I's lives for the next 30 years and how they have been a part of our lives and a part of ministry and a part of Wellspring. I think God, through Wellspring, has done some special things for both Danny and Megan. Danny has, you know, I think through Wellspring when we were meeting at the high school, came to a place where he knew he needed to get serious about living for Jesus and has done that. And But not only that, not only did he meet Jesus here at Wellspring, he, he met his lovely bride here at Wellspring as well. And so we, uh, we all agree that God is good, right? It, it is always one of the hardest things for Mary and I has always been for all these years that we've been serving God in ministry is watching people leave. That is hard. It's a bittersweet, bitter because they leave, but, and it's a sweet, especially in this case, because they are not going to a new job, folks. They are answering the call of God. Amen. 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 The call of God as they go to Oklahoma to serve God in that way. And so we are just so thankful for them. And uh, let's give Danny a warm welcome as he comes and speaks. Good morning. It's quite the introduction. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. And I'm going to be talking about the Feast of Purim. And the reason I want to talk about that feast, well, there's a couple, but first and foremost, that's happening this week. I don't know if Shorty has talked about it down here in the way she has in Grand Junction, but the Feast of Purim is happening here in a few days. And if some of you aren't aware of what the Feast of Purim is, fear not. We're going to go through the book of Esther, and you'll have a better idea of why that's happening. And so my goal today is we are going to go through the entire book of Esther. Um, I'm going to kind of move quickly through it, covering each chapter, giving a brief overview of each chapter, and then you'll have an idea of what Purim is and why it's celebrated. But also, we'll see a theme in that story, and it's a theme that we can see throughout the scriptures, and I want to talk about that theme and what it means for our lives as we live Um, for God, but also in light of what God has done for us. So a little bit of introductory information about Purim. 
It's coming up on March 16th and 17th, also known as the 14th and 15th of Adar on the Jewish calendar. And it's considered a minor holiday. And the reason it's considered a minor holiday is it's not one of the seven original feasts um, given in the Torah uh, by God to his people. It happened later on in history. And it took place in the 5th century B.C., uh, 450-ish years prior to Jesus coming to dwell with his people here on earth. And it is during a time when the Jewish people are dispersed in the land of Persia. The Feast of Purim is a time of great celebration and great joy, and we'll learn why here in a little while. But also food is an important part of this uh, feast, and there's something called Haman's ears that are really popular during this time, and you'll learn why that might be. And then a common tradition is to read through the entire book of Esther during Purim. Now, we're not going to do that here today, but we are going to go through the entire book, so it is somewhat in line with that tradition. So if you would, and if you haven't already, you can turn to the book of Esther as I said, if you'd like, you can follow along, but I am going to be moving kind of quickly through each chapter. So chapter one, we are introduced to King Xerxes. King Xerxes is the king of Persia at the time. He has a different name um, in the Hebrew that's much harder to pronounce, so I'm just going to stick with King Xerxes for simplicity's sake. Chapter one, King Xerxes decides he wants to throw a party because of the success he has been having. And to give you an idea of what kind of party this would be, we read in Esther 1.8 that drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So that's the kind of party we're talking about there. Fast and loose, maybe some would say. Uh, whatever any man wants to do, whatever he desires to do, that's the kind of party they're going to be having. And not only that, but it's a 180-day party, all right? So we're not talking about one night on the town. We're talking about an extended celebration. And that 180-day party is going to be followed by another seven-day party, and then it's going to be coupled with a feast that the queen is going to put on for all of the women. Well, during this party, the king has this great idea. He decides he wants to parade his queen in front of all of his drunken friends. What a great idea, right? And so he calls for the queen and wants to show her off to all the peoples and princes, and Queen Vashti refuses, and the king becomes enraged. And not only does he become enraged, but he and his advisors are concerned that the other women in the kingdom are going to hear of this behavior and think that it's something that's okay, that the other women might follow suit. And so it's decided that something must be done. Esther 1.19, we read, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So Queen Vashti is being punished. She is no longer queen because of her decision to not be paraded in front of the drunken peoples and princes. Chapter 2, the king realizes what he's done, or more likely he's finally kind of sobered up and realizes he doesn't have a queen anymore because he kicked Vashti out of that position. 
So they decide that they're going to have a beauty pageant to select the next queen. They pick all the young, beautiful virgins in the land, and they hold this pageant, and they also are paraded in front of the king, and he decides who his next queen is going to be. And we are introduced into one of our main characters, Esther. Esther 2.17 reads, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther, one of our main characters, she's young and she's beautiful, and she's being raised by her cousin, her adoptive father, Mordecai, who is also an important player in this story. And she is a Jew. She is from the Jewish people. But the king does not know this. And that's an important detail to keep in your minds as we move forward. The king does not know that she comes from the Jewish people. Well, also in this chapter, Mordecai hears of a plot against the king. Uh, someone has going out for the king's life. And so Mordecai reports it. And when Mordecai reports it, it's investigated by the king and it's found to be true. And the king remembers this and honors Mordecai, and he has this event written down in the book of Chronicles. And we've got to remember that as well as we move through this story. It's written down that Mordecai has saved the life of the king. Chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain of our story, Haman. Earlier I mentioned Haman ears. Yeah, that's right. You boo or hiss when you hear his name. That's another tradition during Purim. And Haman was high up in the king's circle. In Esther 3.5, we read, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. The reason he's filled with fury is because everyone bows down to Haman. That's how high up he is, just one step below the king. But Mordecai, Esther's adoptive father, refuses to bow down to him. And this enrages him, of course, because he thinks a lot of himself. Because of this, he comes up with a plan. And his plan is to destroy the Jewish nation. He's going to annihilate all of the Jews because Mordecai will not bow to him. And Mordecai is a Jew. So they cast lots to decide what day the Jews are to be destroyed. Those lots are called pur which is where the name for Purim comes from. That's why the feast is titled what it is, because of these lots that were cast to decide what day the Jews were to be destroyed. And so Esther 3.13, letters were sent by carriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. So we have a letter being sent out, signed and sealed by the king's signet ring that the Jews are to be destroyed on this day. Chapter four, Mordecai again learns of the plot for the Jews to be destroyed, and he goes to Esther, and mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting ensue. Remember, the king does not know that his queen is a Jew. And so Mordecai, when he goes to Esther, um, he goes to her and says, you got to go to the king, you got to plead our case, you got to fight for your people. But she has some great reservations about this. And the reason she has 
great reservations about this, is you don't just go to the king. You only go before the king if the king summons you. And in fact, the penalty for approaching the king without his invitation is death, even for the queen. So Mordecai exchanges messages with Esther. I'm going to read a few verses here because this probably is the most popular part of this book, the most well-known part of the story of Esther. Um, I would say even probably the most preached on part of Esther. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So a few things to point out in those verses, and I think you can understand why it is preached on, why it is popular. First, there's the faith of Mordecai. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther, you need to do this, but even if you don't, God will find someone else. And really, what Mordecai is pointing to there is the faithfulness of God to his people. Mordecai has great faith that God made a promise to his people, and he's going to keep it. And so Mordecai uh, lays that out when he says, Esther, if you don't do this, someone else will, because God's going to raise someone up. But along with that, Mordecai says to her, perhaps God has brought you into this place for such a time as this. And I think that's true for all of us in one way or another. We all have our area of influence, whether we're parents, you know, siblings, grandparents, we're employees, whatever it may be, we all have our area of influence. And it is true that God has put you in that place for such a time as this. And even more so, as a whole and as a body, the Christian church has been put in this place and time for such a time as this. There are those battles to be waged. Those are, there are those fights to be fought. And God has put his people in this place for that time. And then finally, we do see Esther come around and exhibit her faith as well. And she says she will go before the king, and if she perishes, she perishes. And so we see the faith of both of them coming around, trusting in what God is going to do. Chapter 5, Esther does go into the inner court and approaches the king, and the king finds her to be favorable, and he allows her to approach him. And in that, she gets a request. The king lets her know that because he has found her favorable, that she can request anything, even half of his kingdom. And her request simply is that her, the king and Haman would join her for a feast. And in Esther 5.9, we read, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. All right, Haman already thinks a lot of himself, but now the queen is inviting him to a feast where it's just the king, the queen, and Haman. And he's thinking a lot, but the verse continues. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor 
trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So the joy was short-lived because again, he encounters Mordecai and Mordecai refuses to bow to him because he is simply a man and Mordecai will not fall into that idolatry. Haman gets home and he reminds himself how rich he is and how powerful he is. And then he starts um, to feel better about himself. And then his wife comes up with this grand idea and Haman thinks it's a great idea that he should build these 50-foot gallows so that when it's time to destroy the Jews, he can personally hang Mordecai on these gallows. And Haman thinks that's a great idea. Now we're into chapter 6, and we find that the king is laying in bed, and he's having some trouble sleeping. And so, because he can't go to sleep, he tells his servants to bring him the book of Chronicles, the same book that I mentioned earlier in the story. And when the king reads the book of Chronicles on his restless night, he remembers about Mordecai. And he remembers what Mordecai has done in saving his life. And so the king goes to Haman, his right-hand man, and he asks Haman, if I were to honor a man, what should I do? And, Morde and Haman thinks it's him, so he comes up with this great idea. He's like, oh, the king wants to honor me. What do I want? He says, you know, new royal robes. I want to be paraded around the town on the royal horses. Um, I want everyone to see me. Um, you name it. But it turns out, in fact, the king was asking on behalf of Mordecai. So he tells Haman, go find Mordecai and do it for him. The very man that he hates, the very man that he can't stand, the king is now commanding Haman that he has to go and honor that man. And the people around Haman are starting to see the tide turn. And in Esther 6.13, we read, Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So the people around Haman are seeing what's happening, and they're seeing that things are not quite going the way that Haman was hoping Chapter 7, we read about Esther and her feast, and this is where Esther finally reveals the truth to her king. She reveals to the king that she is a Jew, and she reveals to the king that there is also a plot to destroy the Jews, and the king becomes furious, and he storms out of the room and goes to the garden. Now, she has told the king that it's Haman that has this great plan. And Haman is terrified for his life. And Haman throws himself um, at the feet of Esther to beg for forgiveness, to beg for his life. The king returns and finds that it looks like Haman is putting hands on Esther. That's what he believes is going on. And so he um, becomes even more upset and decides that something needs to happen to Haman. In Esther 7, 9 through 10, we read, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So the very gallows 
that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, the king has now commanded that Haman be hanged on those instead of Mordecai. Chapter 8, the king takes Haman's signet ring and his position and gives it over to Mordecai. Mordecai has now taken the place of Haman in the king's court. And Esther begs the king to undo the edict to destroy the Jews. And he does that exact thing, and Mordecai gets to prepare the message. So in Esther 8, 10 through 12, we read... And he wrote in the name of the king and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted carriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on... On one day throughout all the provinces of the king, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So, the script has flipped. Now, there is a letter being sent out on the king's behalf that says, not only are the Jews not going to be destroyed or annihilated, but if anybody comes against the Jews, then the Jews are allowed to destroy that people. And that is exactly what happens in chapter 9. The Jews overcome all of their enemies. They kill over 75,000 men on that day, including the 10 sons of Haman. And afterward, there were days of rest, feasting, and gladness. And Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all of the Jews about it. Esther 9.28 these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And that is why this day is celebrated even until this day, is because the Jews were to be destroyed, but instead they ended up overcoming their enemies. And that is why it is a great day of rejoicing and a great day of celebration because instead of them being destroyed, they overcame their enemies. And I want to touch on chapter 9, verse 1, because I think this verse really captures the theme of this entire story. And it's the theme that I want to focus on for the next little while. Esther 9.1 reads, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reverse occurred. That's really where I want to focus for the next little while. The reverse occurred. Now, had we read through the entire book of Esther, as is tradition, there is something that would have jumped out at all of y'all, or potentially you would have at least caught it. If you read through the entire book of Esther, there is a name absent from that entire book, and that name is the name of God. God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. 
And that's in a very important detail for us to latch on to. Because not only did the reverse occur, but God was clearly working in the background. Yes. And I think that's what we're to capture by that fact that his name is not mentioned. Because there are far too many coincidences in the book for it to just happen that way. Clearly, God is doing something in the background. You know, he put a Jewish person in, in as queen. You know, there's Mordecai saving the king's life. The king can't sleep. He reads the book of Chronicles. He remembers that, and the story changes. There's just too many coincidences for that to be the truth. But I think that's also why we can read a passage like Romans 8.28 and be encouraged and have faith in it. Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can believe that verse and trust in that promise regardless of how we perceive things are going because we can find ourselves in those situations that seem impossible or in those situations that seem like there's no way out and we can trust that no matter what, regardless of how we feel about a situation, regardless of how we perceive a situation, God is working out things for our good because we are called according to his purpose. Now, in this story of Purim, he gives a great victory, and it is to be celebrated, and that is a good thing. But I do want to emphasize that God always gives a victory, but maybe not in the way we would want and maybe not in the way that the world would perceive as an actual victory. There are going to be those times when instead of rescuing, rescuing you from a situation, God is actually going to leave you there and allow you to endure that hardship and sanctify you through the process. And though that may not be the victory we necessarily want, in the big scheme of things, it is still a victory. So that theme there of the reverse occurring and God working behind the scenes and God giving a victory in one way or another is where I want to focus on some different stories in the scriptures. I'm going to cover two from the Old Testament and then I'm going to go into one in the New Testament where we can see this same theme occurring in the people of God. I'm going to jump to Genesis 15, and I'm going to be reading verses 13 and 14, but I'll also reference Genesis 12 here. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God, when he's making a covenant with Abram, tells him that your offspring will be strangers and servants in a land for 400 years. And that's in Genesis 15. But what we also must remember is in Genesis 12, God had just called Abraham out of his land and told him, that I will make you a great nation. Now, these two passages seem to conflict each other. Chapter 12, God tells Abram, you're going to be a great nation. Your offspring is going to become a great nation. Chapter 15, he tells him, 
your people actually are going to be strangers in a land not their own, and they're going to be servants for 400 years. That's not really my idea of a nation-building plan. I mean, I'm no expert in building nations, but if I were to come to you with the plan of like, hey, I got this great idea. We're going to build this great, mighty nation. And step one, we're going to make them slaves. You'd be like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work so well, right? I don't think that's going to play out. But again, this is God working in the background and allowing the reverse to occur. Because this is exactly what happens. The people of Israel become slaves in Egypt for 400 years before God delivers them. They are strangers in a land not their own. And when you think about even the way that they became slaves in Egypt, we see God working in the background there and allowing the reverse to occur. Joseph's brothers, you guys all know that story probably, Joseph's brothers decide that they are going to sell him into slavery instead of killing him. So they sell him into slavery. And he does suffer for a little while, but eventually he becomes powerful in Egypt. And lo and behold, there's a famine in the land, and his brothers end up having to go to him for food. They don't know it's him, but they have to go to Egypt for food. Joseph reveals that it's him. His brothers are terrified and saddened because they thought for sure he was dead. But Joseph recognized what we need to recognize, that God was always working, and he forgives his brothers. And he tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The reverse occurred. You meant it for evil, but the reverse happened. God used it for good. But either way, they do go to Egypt. They do go into slavery. And so how is it that they could become a great nation with that? That doesn't make any sense from a worldly way of thinking. But in Exodus 1, 8 through 9, we read, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, why is this new pharaoh concerned about how big the people group is? It's really amazing when you think about it. When the people of Israel went into Egypt with Joseph during that time of famine, there was 70 of them. When God finally delivers them from this evil Pharaoh, they leave with 600,000 men. That's just the men. So they left Egypt with well over a million people. And not only did they have a lot of people, but they were able to leave with all the possessions of the Egyptians because they plundered them. And so what we might think as a bad nation-building plan, God allowed the reverse to happen. They weren't destroyed in slavery. They weren't beaten down in slavery necessarily. In fact, they were strengthened. They, were, they grew to over a million people from 70 and so not only were they strong and able to survive their time in the desert, but they were a large people group and ready to inhabit a new nation. The opposite of Kurd. 400 years of bondage turned into a mighty and rich nation. But of course there was hardship during that time. That's why they cried out to God in slavery. And that brings me back to what I said earlier. God might allow you to stay in a hard situation, a situation that seems impossible, so that he can grow you and sanctify you in it. 
Yes, of course, he could just rescue you from it, but oftentimes he allows his people to stay there so that they can be prepared for whatever it is he has planned next. The next story I'd like to cover we find in Jeremiah 29. And this story is about the people of Israel being placed in exile in Babylon. And this verse that I want to read first is also very well known. It's super popular. And I'm sure some of you maybe have it marked in your Bibles or even have it hanging on your wall at your home. Jeremiah 29.11 reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that is a really encouraging verse. But unfortunately, at times, I think we pull that verse out of its context and we only focus on what I will call the really positive parts of the verse. That God has plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And that is true. But what do those plans look like? It's not always sunshine and rainbows. When you read that verse in its context and you read the verse just prior, Jeremiah 29.10, we read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years of exile. God told them prior to that that he has good plans for them. And part of those plans were 70 years of exile. That means that there were going to be people in Israel that would pass away in Babylon. It also means that there would be people born in Babylon that never would have seen Israel and would be raised in Babylon. And so part of those good plans that God had for his people, part of those plans included being exiles there in a foreign land. And to go along with that, there's a really interesting aspect of the story in the chapter before. In the chapter before, there is a prophet, a lying prophet, a bad prophet. And he tells the people of Israel that don't worry about it. Okay, I'm paraphrasing, right? I'm putting that in some modern terms there. He says, don't worry about it. You're not going to be there that long. It's just going to be a few years. It won't be that hard. And God sends Jeremiah to that prophet to condemn him. And say, why are you lying to my people? It actually is going to be hard. And it's going to be a long time. It's going to be 70 years. And that's really important for us to understand as well. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into this perception that no matter what, it's going to be super easy because God is there. No, Jesus promised us that we would face trouble in this world and that we would face hard times. The promise really is that God will be with us no matter what. The promise isn't that it'll be easy all the time. Instead, the promise is that God will be with us through it. And that's exactly what those people also in Jeremiah had to learn themselves. And then in Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13, these are really the verses I think that we should focus on in this story. So you have verse 10, where God tells them they'll be in exile for 70 years. And then he says, but I have good plans for you. And then 12 and 13 read, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Those are the verses that we should really focus on. Yes, 11 is encouraging, and it is a great promise. But what were they to do during those 70 years? It's right there in 12 and 13. They are to pray to God, and they are to seek him. And that is exactly what we are called to do in our times of trouble as well. We are to cry out to God, and we are to seek him, and he will be there with us. He says when we seek him with all of our heart, we will find him. Now I'd like to jump to the New Testament. Those were two examples in the Old Testament, and here's one in the New Testament that I just have to mention because it is awesome. It is awesome the perspective that these individuals, specifically Paul, um, have in their time of trouble. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how bad it was for Paul and his companions on their missionary trip. They had faced such strong persecution and hardships that they felt like they had received a death sentence. It says that they had despaired of life itself. They wanted no more to do with it. They were done and they were spent. And again, from the outside looking in, you'd look at that and say, well, clearly they were doing something wrong, right? I mean, if it was that hard, they must not have been hitting the right formula. They must not have been praying in the right way. They must, not have, they must have been going against God's will. Something was wrong for it to be that hard for them. But then we read the last part of the last verse. So why did all of this happen? Why was it so hard for them? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was the purpose for all those hardships. That was the purpose for the death sentence that they felt they had received. So that they would know that it wasn't on their own strength and on their own power that they were going to make it through this. But only by relying on God could they make it through this. And again, that is the reverse occurring. It's very easy for us to fall into impossible situations and hardship and think, I'm doing something wrong. But maybe the reverse is occurring. Maybe in reality, God is trying to show you and me that we need to stop trying to do it on our own. And we need to instead rely on God. And we all agree on that. We all shake our heads in agreement and amen it. But we have to remember it when those times hit. And that is the real challenge. And that is why I'm focusing on all these different stories. Whether it's Purim or the slavery in Egypt or the exile in Babylon or what Paul and his companions were facing here in Asia, we need to be reminded of these things over and over and over again. Because... Uh, we just seem to forget it, especially when we are, our lives are filled with smooth trails and blessings. We seem to forget that there will be trouble and there will be hardship. And then when it does hit, 
we struggle and we wonder why and we question what God is doing. When in reality, if we just look through all of these stories in scripture, we can see that God is always working for the good of his people. No matter what it looks like, no matter what we are going through. And that theme of the reverse occurring is really what I would like to finish up with. Because no matter what story you're looking at, that always seems to be what God is doing. I mean, just the stories we've shared today, and there's more of them in Scripture, it looks like big trouble for God's people. It looks like they got no chance. It seems like they're going to be destroyed. But then something happens, and God comes through, and his people are redeemed, his people are rescued, or his people are sanctified. And that happens over and over and over again in Scripture. And in fact, it even happens at the very beginning of the book. When you look at Genesis in the creation story, we're told that the earth was void, filled with darkness, and without form, right? There's that bad news. Dark, void, without form, that doesn't sound like a great place. But then God enters the picture, he speaks life into it, and life is everywhere, and beauty is everywhere. So even that, in the very beginning, at Genesis, we see that theme occurring. And so I think we would ask ourselves, why is this always the theme? Why is this always happening? Why is it that it's like, Bad news, then God steps in, and then there's good news. Well, because I think there's a purpose. I think there's a purpose in Purim and a purpose in these other stories to draw our eyes to a certain place, to draw our eyes to a certain person. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You, all y'all, me included, that's your story. At one point in time in your life, you were dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses. And you deserved that death because you loved your sin. We read that in other places in Scripture. Right? There's that bad news. There's that dark part of the story. But what happens next? God steps in. Those of you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The reverse occurred. You deserved death, but God stepped in and allowed the reverse to occur, and he forgave you all of your sins and trespasses and made you alive in him. But how did he do that? How did he do that? We find that in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is how 
the reverse occurred. That is how we escaped death and condemnation, is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why all these stories have that same theme, so that when we read them and we see what's going on, we can turn our eyes to Jesus, and we can say to ourselves, what God did there for his people, he did ultimately and eternally for his people through his son that he sent to die on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is really where we need to focus our eyes, whether it's Purim or any of these other stories. When we see that happening, when we see God rescuing his people, we need to remember how he ultimately and eternally rescued his people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gathering of this people and that we are able to do so. I pray, Lord, for myself and each and every person here that you would help us remember who you are and the goodness that you have displayed to your people that you would especially help us in those times of trouble, in those times of hardship, so that we may not be blinded by our perceptions, but instead would remember who you are and what you have done for us. But I pray even more so, Lord, that each and every day, each and every morning, we would all wake up and remember the bigger story, that you sent your son on our behalf. You didn't have to, but you chose to. Let us never, ever, ever, ever forget what you have done for us through your son and the glorious work that he accomplished on that cross on our behalf. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.